Super Talk Mississippi media production. Have you been seriously injured? Mama Justice is here for you. Our medical team partners with top-notch doctors, surgeons, therapists, and urologists, ensuring a comprehensive recovery journey. If you've been injured, call Mama Justice today. We're here for you. Howdy, howdy. It's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert, along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studios, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this Friday Eve. And a wet one it is out there. It ain't fit Just for a bit man soggy. or beast. I'm telling you. Uh, so this looks like some sort of tropical disturbance that has come ashore, because if you look at the direction in which the precipitation is moving, it uh, is that which you typically find with tropical-type weather coming out of the southeast, moving northwest, circulating, if you will. How weird is that for this time of year? A little weird, but... Not unheard of. Okay. Well, I saw our friend uh, Ricky Matthews, host of Coast View, of course, and Super Talk Outdoors. He keeps up with that sort of stuff, and on his social media, he gave us kind of the technical meteorological explanation, which lost me, honestly. (laughs) But a little weird going through. Yeah, I saw somewhere where they were watching a disturbance in the Atlantic that could possibly be the first tropical depression or tropical storm. I forget which one it was. Okay. It was one of those fourth month of April ever, but it, it hasn't fully formed. But there are storms that are tropical in nature that don't quite rise to depression or storm or hurricane that still act similar. Okay. So the NOAA, by the way, you know who those guys are, the weather folks. What does that stand for? National Oceanic... An Atmospheric Association? There you go. Thank you. Agency. There you go. Completing the... One of those governmental A's. (laughs) They said that we're moving from La Nina, which ended last month, to El Nino. More neutral conditions expected to end at some point in the summer. El Nino, which is Spanish for the Nino. Okay, that's which means what? (laughs) Well, La Nina and El Nino are are little girl and little boy, and one is warming waters, one is cooling waters. Oh, I thought you were just translating the L to the there. Well, yeah, that's the way it works. (laughs) Okay. Oh, what does that mean for our weather? Means it would be the inverse of what we've seen the last few years. uh, Is it La Nina to El Nino? I think means that it's the reverse. 
when I first remember hearing it way back when, I could remember which one was which, but now we've had so many of them back and forth where I don't remember which one is wetter and which one's drier. Yeah, this says, uh, reading the report from NOAA, it would likely mean a cold, wet winter for the southern U.S. A strong El Nino in particular is associated with lots of rain for the southwest and California, eh? Though California had a pretty wet, cold winter this past one. That was without El Nino being They need all the water from the skies they can get. Yeah, you see they're out there fighting over that Colorado River once again, the uh, principal source of water for many of the western United States. And it also says El Nino can strengthen hurricane season, but more... Uh, I should say weaker uh, hurricanes usually are the result of an El Nino weather pattern. Hmm. Didn't know that. Uh, has a lot to do, does it not, with the the positioning of the Gulf Stream in the in yes. high up in the atmosphere. The Gulf or jet? Yeah, the, the jet stream. Pardon me. Pardon me, the jet stream. Gulf Stream's a plane, isn't it? Right, yes, my bad. I was thinking airplanes there. So the jet stream, which is, uh, of course, drives and and steers the storms as they move typically from west to east. I mean, that the jet stream impacts weather around the globe. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the same jet stream that impacts whether or not we have a good day or a bad day weather-wise is the same jet stream that tries to blow you off the top of Mount Everest if you climb it. <laughs> Same exact one. That's true. Okay, so we got some economic news for you. Today, the producer price index was released. That's the PPI. That's basically a reading of wholesale pricing inflation. And it came in much milder than expected. This is good news from the perspective of are we going to see inflation began to moderate because producer price index measures the cost of inputs to the production process, which, of course, uh, trickles down, if you will, to the retail price that we consumers pay at the cash registers. That's what the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, measures. Inflation, consumer price inflation. So it came in sinking rather dramatically to 2.7%, and that is down from 4.9% in the prior month. It's the lowest annual level for key inflation since January 2021, so it slumped 0.5% month over month, 0.5%. That was unexpected on an annual basis. The PPI comes in at about 3% for the 12 months ended in March. So that's a considerable decrease in the cost of goods to the production process. And this foretells typically that inflation retail price, I should say, should moderate, should fall, and thus inflation so the markets are reacting positively to that uh, this morning. What's really kind of insidious is that, in my view, is that 
Representative Hakeem Jeffries. You know who he is. He's the now the minority leader in the House of Representatives. He was the Democrat choice for Speaker of the House, of course, with the Republicans being in control. That effort failed to push him into the position of Speaker, but he's kind of the Speaker in, in waiting in the wings to succeed Nancy Pelosi on the Democrat side. Should the Democrats take control of the House, which is likely the way that thing flip-flops. He says in a tweet, inflation dropped to its lowest level in almost two years. That's from the CPI yesterday, which was down. Says we will continue to build an economy that works for all everyday Americans. People over politics. So, empty words and vacuous ideas. <laughs> empty words and vacuous ideas with no understanding of iron. Anytime I see this sort of stuff, where these these politicians make these statements about the economy, and in this case, this is a guy taking victory laps because of the moderation of inflation we saw based on the CPI. I always want to ask exactly what policies. What bills did you pass? What policies did you implement that produced this result? The answer is none. In fact, it is your policies that pushed inflation to record levels. It's the old analogy we use about, well, you dug the hole and then you filled it back in, and you want to medal now, a parade declaring victory. We filled that hole in that we dug out a year ago. That's exactly what this is. Speaking of filling a hole, yeah, we talked yesterday about the governator filling up a pothole and getting it on social media and getting lots of praise for it. And comes to find out that wasn't a pothole. That was an active service trench. (laughs) So have there been any any consequences then to the governor? None result? so far. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so good. But it's another perfect example of the inefficiency of government. Man, you dig out an active exactly. service trench to work on something under the road, <laughs> and it's open so long people think it's a pothole. <laughs> that's so crazy. <laughs> Oh, gosh. People over politics, says Hakeem Jeffries. What a dead gum joke. We've got Dr. Mark Horn on the program today at 11.05, and then Senator Jeremy England will recap the 2023 legislative session at 12.05. And uh, between those interviews, we got lots of stuff to talk about. The price of eggs. We'll discuss that. When we come back here on Midday, stay with us. Days with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. On Super Talk Mississippi. Let's go. 
Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi. So just just to clarify this PPI stuff, the uh, the headline here is that wholesale prices, which have been on a uh, an upward trajectory, which of course drives inflation because that's the cost of inputs to the production process. Just take the price of gas, for example. It it maps to the price of oil. Now, a lot of people will say, well, it, it seems like the price of oil goes down long before the price of the pump goes down, but when the price of oil goes up, I mean, goes goes down, they're slow to change it at the pump, at the retail, right? But when it goes up, man, they get it up in a hurry. So, I mean, those are, I think, plausible concerns, but there's a lot more complexities behind the scenes than that. In general, it's no secret when the price of oil, the primary input, crude oil, to the production process, it does, in fact, map to the price of retail fuel, gas, diesel. And so... The same is true for so many other commodities. So when we see a report like we have today, which says that the annualized price increase has declined to 2.7% from the prior report of 4.9%, we're not saying prices went down by the delta there of 2.2%. That's not what that means. It just means that the rate of increase has shrunk from 4.9% year over year to 2.7%. Still going up, just not as much. And, of course, to achieve that, yeah, usually that means a lot of the basket of goods that are tested there in in the cost inputs, some did, in fact, decrease, didn't necessarily increase by a lesser amount. They did decrease. Egg prices, for example, it's being reported that the price of eggs fell 10.9%, and that's been in focus because there have been a lot lot of... um, Because they went up about 150%. I think 140, exactly, to be year over year, if I'm not mistaken. And, of course, the egg producers maintain that the the bird flu, which just absolutely destroyed much of the egg-laying hens, uh, contributed to a decrease in supply of eggs, and thus the price went up. It's a commodity. It's traded that way. But monthly egg prices, the decline month over month was 10.9% from February to March, and that represents the sharpest decline in 36 years, month to month. Now, it's still high relative to last year, certainly relative to the price of eggs pre-pandemic. But the trend is positive. The trend is positive. And that's the second month in a row the price of eggs have decreased. Eggs are now 36% more expensive than they were a year ago. That's what the official report is that's down from 70% more in January, year over year. So 
That is a, that's a good trend. It's a positive trend. The market's like that. I think, honestly, it's indicative of something much larger, which is we're headed for a recession. And I don't mean one where uh, we're not really quite sure if we call this a recession or not sort of deal, which we saw last year. We get into the weeds about how to define what a recession is. <clears throat> and and so that's bad news, I would say, for Joe Biden seeking re-election. Yeah, he won't be able to spend the coming one. Correct. That's exactly right. You won't get into all these semantics about, well, that's not really a recession. There's two consecutive quarters. And, and honestly, most people consider a recession to be a period where they're out of work. Jobs are difficult to come by, and there's more supply of labor than there is demand for jobs. And as long as people are working, even though they're enduring inflation and high price of, of uh, high cost of everything they consume, they tend to think, well, it's okay, I'm working. Especially if they see their wages increase. Now, statistically, mathematically, wages have not increased sufficient to keep up with the increase of goods and services through inflation. There's a there's a delta there. So the net of that is that you're upside down. Biden never talks about that. Wages are going up, yeah, but the cost of living went up more. It's a, you only get half half of the story. If only. You had to deal with the revenue side in your checkbook. I don't have to deal with the cost side. That's really what he's saying there, or people are telling him to say. But this will be an issue, I think, in the 2024 election. And right now, it would um, be a wise bet to say Donald Trump is going to emerge as the Republican candidate. And I think he's going to tout where the economy was during his tenure. He'll have to, of course, I think, explain he should the massive spending that occurred to address COVID in 2020. That was major. And he'll he'll get attacked by his Democrat opponent and maybe even his Republican opponents in the primary about the massive amount of spending that occurred under his watch and the increase in the debt more than any other president. Of course, it was an an anomaly with the COVID stuff. But here's the thing that, even though Democrats like to point to that, that I, I keep reminding people, I don't know that there was a single Democrat in Congress that voted against those two measures and the other policies being implemented by the Fed and so forth. Not a single one that I can recall. In fact, what they wanted to do was continue many of those policies. So that's just dishonest. I know you're shocked by that, that they were they're dishonest in, in their campaign rhetoric. But this guy, Jeffries, oh, yeah, we're building an economy that works for all Americans. What do you mean you are? What did you do except drop helicopter money all over the place when Biden first got elected, which drove the inflation? You're the one that created the problem. Your policies did that. They refused to acknowledge that, of course. 
And so any sort of glimmer of good news is they immediately attach themselves to it as uh, being the reason for it. And and then, of course, brag about it. The South, South Carolina now, in that right right now, is going to be the first state. We shifted away from Iowa to South Carolina, right, where the primaries will be held for uh, president. First state now. So... In South Carolina, it used to be Iowa, New Hampshire, then South Carolina. Right. And we've shifted that now to South Carolina. I don't know which the second state is. But I know South Carolina is now first. You see that? Am I right on that? You agree? Trying to find it. Okay. Pretty sure that's what, uh, what was changed. Nonetheless... The presidential preference, based on recent polls in South Carolina, on the Republican side, showed Donald Trump receiving 41 percent and Ron DeSantis 20 percent, Nikki Haley 18 percent, Tim Scott 7 percent. Vivek Ramaswamy not on the list there. What do you say? The new order is South Carolina, Nevada, New Hampshire, then Georgia, and Michigan. Okay, so Iowa is not even in the top five anymore. Used to be the first, dropped off the list. Makes sense. So South Carolina is the first. So all eyes will be on South Carolina to see how the candidates do. Interesting that Tim Scott brings up the rear there with 7%. That's his home state. So all indications are, if I were a betting man today, Donald Trump's going to be the Republican candidate and this will be interesting. Will we see a debate between Joe Biden and Donald Trump again? Because right now it looks like Biden's in the basement. I think they like the old basement campaign. And yesterday, his White House press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, was defending the president for how accessible he is to the media. But the data says something different. And we've got some data on that uh, when we come back in terms of presidential press conferences for the last five presidents. I don't think you'll be surprised. We'll share that when we come back on Middays in the Element Wealth Studios. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. Foreigner bumping us into this segment of middays from the Element Wealth Studio. Are you thinking about or planning for retirement? Do you have a plan? Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. And the inflation data out this morning, a little milder than expected. 
has uh, prompted a tech rally on Wall Street. The tech stocks are up, and that's because they're growth stocks, considered growth stocks, and growth is more valuable when inflation is more in check. In a, in a period of uh, inflationary times or with the trajectory, uh, looks like it forecasts more inflation, calls for more inflation than growth stocks, so-called growth stocks, such as tech stocks, which continue to increase their revenue and net income, are less attractive to investors. But when inflation looks like it's in check, then growth stocks receive some money. They uh, become more attractive, and investors will dump more of their portfolios in there, and that's what's driving right now. Uh, yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Wow. It is quite the rally. It's good to see Apple up today, $3.50. Meta's up, $4.34. Microsoft, which is taking a beating of late a little bit. Up $4.10. NVIDIA, Palo Alto, etc. So, good news at least for today. Of course, the Biden administration hates that because those dirty, greedy, rich people are making more money. Speaking of dirty, greedy, rich people, although I don't think that. Of course, that's a statement made with tongue and cheek. Over there in France, they ain't happy. About the, you seeing this about the retirement age going from 62 to 64, and they are piling in the streets over there in France. And in fact, more specifically, they're at the uh, the headquarters of the company that uh, produces Louis Vuitton and some other widely known brands. And literally the protesters, and they're not setting fire to the building, but there's a lot of them right outside the headquarters of LVMH is the name of the company. And the chief executive is Bernard Arnault, now the world's richest man. It's a conglomerate. They make Louis Vuitton and a lot of these other household brands. And uh, it's considered a luxury conglomerate, right? Because I don't know that of, I would consider Louis Vuitton a household brand. Well, it's it's well known. Yeah, is what I mean by yeah. So, but they, but Rhino, there are a lot of folks that. Honestly, and it's not my place to tell them how to spend their money. Not saying that. But there are a lot of people that uh, probably aren't as prudent, shall we say, in the management of their household finances and need certain things in their lives, but rather they spend it on very expensive luxury purses and the like. Would you agree with that? Yeah, you've seen that. And it doesn't help the argument that, I mean, it's Louis Vuitton's prerogative to do with their merchandise what they want, but sure. they're notorious for if something doesn't sell within a season, it gets destroyed. It does not go on clearance. There is no way to get it at a cheaper price. You are going to pay full price for it, or you're not going to have it. Yep. 
So the, the conglomerate LVMH has experienced a sharp increase in its sales across the globe because there is a, an increase in the demand for such luxury goods. Everything from fine wine in jewelry to leather goods and upscale hotels, the demand is up. little surprising. So they reported a sharp increase in quarterly sales, and they're attributing that to the reopening of China. Demand for clothing, handbags, jewelry, also strong in Europe and Japan. But, again, what's important here is that protesters have stormed the company's headquarters, and I'm seeing the photos, There's it's a video here, there's fire. Like, it looks like in the lobby of the headquarters. And so what this is about is they're trying to send a signal to President Macron, who just raised the retirement age. They're trying to send a signal. You need more money so that we can retire early? Here's where it is. Just come get this company's money so we don't have to work. If I seem like I'm getting fired up, I am. This pisses me off so bad. So this company is producing strong sales and profits because they make stuff people want to buy. It's called value. We've discussed it numerous times on the program. And if I'm beating the the old dead horse, so be it. That's what produces wealth. And this movement now of these fools that are mad because they might have to work to 64. Well, they are trying to tell the president, send a message, just come confiscate the wealth, the assets of this company. That's how you can plug the hole in our pension system. Make no mistake, folks, here's what's important. You look over there and say, oh, that's France. They're crazy. They want to do that here, too. They damn sure do. Every proposal the Democrats have put on the table to stabilize Social Security and Medicare all involve raising taxes substantially on a small segment of the population so they can pay for the retirement and the health care of all the other people, the really, really, really small number of people are going to hit the hip and fund retirement and health care through Medicare of a large swath of the population. That's exactly what they want. Yet they still contend it, that actually happens to a great extent now. They just want to increase it substantially. And they'll contend they're not paying their fair share. But that's what's happening in France. They are I just find it rich, especially for the French, because the vast majority of French people work 11 months out of the year. Their idea oh, yeah. of retirement and our idea of retirement are nothing alike. Because how many people that retire in America take a month off every year? Not only that... Even while they're working, it's a little bit more laid back. Oh yeah, they have they have these 
extended lunches, as you know, and I think I've shared that before, there's like a law in France that prohibits use of email after business hours. I mean, you're breaking the law if you send an email, a business-related email, say, to a colleague or to some other party for business purposes. That's against the law. You cannot work except during the time that the company, the hours, of the, the official hours, whatever that is. That's insane. So that's like saying, put that... Um, Put an analogy to athletics. Well, you can't take batting practice unless we're here taking batting practice. You can't go do a little hitting on your own to get better, to perfect your craft. You can't do that. You're a musical artist. I mean, you can apply that across the spectrum of disciplines in our society. Oh, no. You can only do that when everybody else is. You can't try to get ahead because you're willing to sacrifice and work a little harder and work when others are sitting on their rears. You can't do that. That's incredible. That is a march to mediocrity if I've ever seen it. Robert Clinton says, Gerard Dunn got pissed. (laughs) Me too, brother. This is coming here, folks. Make no mistake. This is coming here because in 2028, Medicare can't pay its bills. And I promise you, people are going to pour into the streets and they're going to demand that our government start confiscating the assets of the people who have more and redistributing that down so their health care can be paid for. That's exactly what's going to happen in this country, because nobody will touch it. Nobody will come up with any practical, plausible, fair solutions. They keep putting it down the road. We're headed for the same thing we're seeing in France today. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios at 11.05. After the break, we've got Dr. Mark Horn. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Keep rolling. Three, two, one. On Super Talk Mississippi. Washington has passed an assault-style weapons ban. I think you're going to see more of that occur across the country in the Democrat-run states. They have also introduced this week up there in Washington, and just I'm just reporting this even though you wonder how does this connect to Mississippi, because this is a trend that's occurring in the country that the Democrats want to push nationwide, and that is a excess compensation tax. Excess compensation tax. That doesn't sound bad at all. (laughs) 7.5% of compensation defined as excess, which is any pay to an individual that is more than 10 times 
the average annual wage as determined by the state's Employment Security Department. So, if you've worked your rear off, taken all kinds of risks, more importantly, produced value for society, making life better for people, you're going to get taxed more. I wonder if it will apply to uh, professional athletes. I don't know. That's a good point, though, because you know that all their pay is more than ten times the average annual wage. There are players with more with ten times more pay than other players on the same team. That's true. That's Let alone between divisions, because you got some guys in minor leagues that are barely scraping by if not making ends meet. And the professionals in the major leagues make way more than ten times that. No doubt about it. Speaking of baseball, you reminded me of this. You know, there's a, been a, an explosion of home runs in the major leagues. You know why, though, don't you? It's global warming! <laughs> I kid you not! I'm not kidding. A new study published in the Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society has examined some 60 years of baseball data, and they have mapped that to daily temperatures. And they said that, well, it's hotter, and therefore the air is thinner, and this accounts for more home runs. 1% more. has nothing to do with the advances in physical training. (laughs) Right. hand-eye coordination right. training or yes. understanding, better understandings of the physics of bat to ball. Yes. No. Nothing to do with that. It's not because Aaron Judge is like 6'9", 280 and can run like a deer. <laughs> nothing to do with that. No, not, not at all. So here's the question I got for these wackos. <laughs> the number of home runs in the AAA league, has not increased. It's like the air different in AAA parks. Is that, is that the reason? Oh, well, down the road in the major league stadium, the air is much thinner because of global warming. It just hadn't made it here to this AAA field. <laughs> Climate change is not just heat waves or hurricanes, explains Christopher Callahan, a climate science Ph.D. student. Oh, yeah, at Dartmouth College. It's these subtle changes in our leisure activities that are going to start affecting people more and more in ways that we may not realize yet. You're going to have to watch more home runs. Just sit down and like it. <laughs> oh, so, so the idea that climate change has increased the home run production that's been batted around for years <laughs> oh gosh with data that squishy i i bet you could massage all kinds of inferences oh, yeah. you sure. could probably find a data set that would prove that more home runs are hitting ballparks surrounded by trees that have squirrels living in them <laughs> no doubt oh it's so funny uh no doubt about it it's I mean, the way they roll, though, if you think about it, 
everything that's changed, be it for, in, in this case, I don't know that this is necessarily bad, but certainly anything bad that happens, it's always attributed to climate change, racism, or radical transphobism, right? Uh, by the way, we got uh, some video later on in the program, a clip for you from Governor Gavin Newsom. <laughs> Once again, as uh, our friend Jeremy Nelson at Element Wealth said yesterday on the program, we're taking our eye off the prize here. So he's so right about that. But you'll see it uh, exhibited by Gavin Newsom in this clip. Right now, though, it's time for Fox News Super Talk News. When we come back, Dr. Mark Horn, Chief Medical Officer, South Central Regional Medical Center, and past president of the Mississippi State Medical Association. We're going to talk about health care in Mississippi. Stay with us. And now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour two of Middays, live from the Element Wealth Studios. And joining us now is Dr. Mark Horn, Chief Medical Officer, South Central Regional Medical Center, past president of the Mississippi State Medical Association. Good morning, Dr. Horn. Good to see you again, sir. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. So, uh, somewhat active legislative session uh, vis-a-vis health care. We got uh, three or four measures that uh, are notable. We'll start with the, uh, the grant program that was established to provide some funding to struggling hospitals. Uh, $105 million, I think, was the total amount. That sounds kind of like a drop in the bucket, honestly, when you consider uh, some of the losses being incurred by these healthcare institutions. We got tax credit program for uh, nurses and advanced practice registered nurses. We got some some uh, student loan forgiveness programs to, tr- to try to stimulate uh, and attract more nurses into those programs. We need more nurses, obviously. There's a tremendous shortage of that. Absolutely. And then we got a, a, a bill that makes it a little easier for hospitals to uh, to consolidate. Um, I didn't even know that was a problem, honestly, until that came up this session and we got some legislation to kind of uh, clear out that log jam. Was, what, uh, so I think that's a, a pretty good uh, summary of the major measures. Did you feel like that this was productive or did we need to do more? It's a beginning. Uh, it's better to begin than to stand still. And, uh, but it's nowhere near what's going to be necessary to really solve the problems of healthcare in the state of Mississippi. Um, as regards the $105 million grant program, um, I was speaking to someone recently and it's, it's kind of like you're bleeding to death and, uh, you need major surgery. And what we got is a really good pressure bandage that's only going to last for a period or, or band aid, really. And it helps. Look, it's better than nothing. 
if you're dying of thirst, a swallow of water is good, but what you really need is a steady supply. And so it's a beginning as regards the nursing. And, and there was another one about physician workforce. We're woefully inadequate on nursing and woefully inadequate on physicians. Anything we can do to grow, and we know that when you grow uh, physicians in particular, and I believe the same thing for nurses, when you grow them locally, when you train them and they and here, they have a greater tendency to stay here, particularly for physicians. They tend to stay where they finish their training, where they finish their terminal training. So if we train more physicians, residencies in the state, much more likely we'll keep them. Hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, the $105 million uh, my small hospital in, in Laurel, we're uh, losing money every month. We, I've been here for 31 years. We've always, in 31 years, at the end of the year, we've always had a, a, a positive balance sheet. It might have been very small, but it was about positive balance sheet. And it's a real struggle to see right now how we're going to do that at the end of this year. Uh, prices for uh, employees are going up. Uh, we're not upset at our employees, but, you know, if we don't get paid more to do a service, and we're not, and in many cases we're getting paid less, and then when that happens and your cost of doing business goes up, you've got a problem. Any business people know that. And then we are mandated. Uh, and, again, I, I'm happy that we're thrilled. We do we see patients and we take care of people that are sick, and we're blessed to be able to do it. It's a wonderful profession. But when you're mandated to do it, whether the – person receiving the services can pay or not, and then you don't have, and then on the paying patients, you're getting pressed from all sides. It's a problem. It's a challenge. I don't think any other, uh, if grocery stores were run that way, if gasoline stations were run that way, I doubt very much they'd be able to, they'd be in the same problem, have the same problem, or be out of business. Yes, yeah, so uh, certainly reports are that many healthcare hospitals in particular, institutions in the state, are in the red, producing a negative cash flow. It, so, Dr. Horn, is this something that is discussed regularly in board meetings, at, let's say at your facility at South Central Regional Medical Center? Is this something the board talks about, like every single meeting, right? Uh, it is something the management team discusses and, and uh, pays attention to and tries to remedy on a daily, sure. hourly basis sure. every um, and um, and the boards discuss it all the time. And the same thing, my friends around the state tell me. And it's not just small. So we, we like to talk about Greenwood, Lafleur, or, or or very small hospitals. Forest General Hospital, public hospital. Those those reports, those financial reports, are public record. Losing money. Yep. Uh, Memorial Gulfport losing money. Baptist System, Baptist, a multi, you know, over a billion dollars a year in revenue. They're losing money. Yep. And that there is a systemic problem here and it's not the people running the institutions it's the system we have insurance companies with essentially monopoly power to dictate what they're going to do uh we have a lack i'll say it we have a lack of expansion there's a bill our state leaders have lit a match to a billion dollars a year of federal money that could be used through medicaid expansion and it can be done in a way that's very conservative and consistent with conservative principles and provides care for our patients and for our, and improves the workforce, uh, strength in our state to attract businesses. We've lit a match to it. Over $10 billion thus far and another billion dollars this year because the, um, uh, they just haven't seen 
clear to uh, and conservative states all around us have taken advantage of this. So speaking of Medicaid, uh, you're well aware that the continuous enrollment provision of the very first uh, COVID aid legislation that passed in 2020, that continuous enrollment provision just ended, uh, effective April 1, which means that the states are compelled by the federal government to begin reviewing their roles for those who were no longer eligible for Medicaid coverage. And they have to be removed from the rolls. It's it's estimated that could affect some hundred, hundred twenty thousand Mississippians enrolled in Medicaid. What what are you think about that? Are you concerned with this? We're very concerned. I mean, this is one of those things that I don't think our uh, state Medicaid had a choice in the matter. They didn't have a choice That's when right. this situation was set up, and they don't have a choice now except to do it. Uh, they have per- their own record in their document in which they lay out what they're going to do, say, hey, this is the greatest challenge we faced in the last decade. Hmm. Uh, and so it's a real uh, bureaucratic uh, challenge, a challenge of paperwork, how to get it done. The fear as a physician, someone who takes care of these patients, the fear that I have is I've got a lot of patients on Medicaid who – uh, don't necessarily have secure internet. They don't have, maybe they don't have secure phone services. They don't have, they may be changing addresses because of needing to rent at a different place or being evicted or whatever. They may not know that they need to be enrolled. They may not be getting the mail that says they need to be enrolled. They may not have the, um, sophistication to know what to do. They're, they're confused. And so then they end up off of Medicaid. And so yes, we understand. It's really important to have people who don't need to be on Medicaid, who've gotten a great job and now don't need it, to be sure that those people get all services. But in the doing of that, we need to be absolutely certain that we protect those most vulnerable. And that's my greatest concern. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's going to uh, be quite the tall order. I was not aware that uh, Medicaid said, yeah, this may be the, the largest task the most difficult task we've ever had to to deal with, but it, it makes sense because they, the roles blew up and the federal government says, and you can't disenroll anybody, and all of a sudden now they're saying, now you got to go disenroll everybody that is not eligible. Plus, at the same time, of course, the federal government is paring back the reimbursement. That phases out uh, that enhancement uh, through September. So you got to deal with that as well. Less money coming from the federal government, and they got to get folks off the rolls to make ends meet. The Mississippi Medicaid's operational unwinding plan, which was available, I think it's available online. I've got a copy I'm glancing at right now. Yeah. That's where that comes from. It's okay. in the first three or four pages where they outline it. Wow. So that's not something I made up. Yeah, no, and wasn't, certainly wasn't suggesting you were, sir. But, uh, yeah, that's a – Well, I didn't think you were, but I – Yeah. Listeners listeners might say, oh, that's hyperbole. I that's got just you. some hospital executive or a physician and like guys this is crit- this is another of those episodes where people in the uh, the public and particularly our leaders don't seem to understand the severity of the situation we're facing yeah it just didn't get a lot of attention there's more attention on a blocking medicaid expansion there was a fair amount of attention on postpartum extension but this disenrolling of of uh, those uh, that are covered by medicaid we started talking about that on this program months ago, and it just didn't seem to get much attention. Now it's here, and we're just going to sit back and watch as it unfolds. Uh, but I think the legislature is going to end up probably having to take some sort of action to deal with this. 
But, uh, Dr. Horn, we really appreciate you uh, calling in this morning and uh, giving us an update there, and I'm sure we'll be talking to you soon. Thanks a lot. Anytime. Thank you. Yes, sir. Dr. Mark Horn, Chief Medical Officer at South Central Regional Medical Center, past president of the Mississippi State Medical Association, has been our guest. We're coming right back. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbons. What? What? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. The Biden administration is reporting just in the last couple of hours that the government is closer to identifying the leaker responsible for disclosing sensitive information from the Pentagon. They think, at least they're hinting, someone on a military base? Yeah, it seems like it was someone that was working on a military base that then uploaded the information to a discord server for minecraft players yeah oh okay minecraft players good grief. took them what six days to find this guy we still don't know who leaked the dobbs decision yeah oh my gosh that doesn't make any sense either does it the leaker is described as a lonely young man and gun enthusiast who was part of a chat room that was with the Discord stuff, with the video games. It's evidently popular among oh, yeah. video game enthusiasts, right? So this is weird. Uh, goes by the moniker OG. That's what they're saying. <laughs> uh, and if you're not familiar with this issue, folks, it's uh, it's Pentagon documents that uh, indicate th- that. The U.S. feels that the Ukraine is about to be essentially totally defeated by the Russians. That Ukraine simply cannot hold off the Russians. And they've got issues with their armaments, their assets, their people. You made a point yesterday, Rhino, off the air that while I guess from an absolute number of losses, Russia's losses exceed those of Ukraine, but yeah, as a, by a as wide a, margin. But as a percent of the available military soldiers, and Ukraine has lost a higher percentage. Yeah, at, which stands to reason because they're a much smaller country from a population perspective. So it's believed by the Pentagon that they have a number of deficiencies and shortfalls. Ukraine does in their ability to defend their turf and that it's just a matter of time they're going to fall. In fact, some are saying it could be the end of May. Total occupation, defeat of Ukraine, total occupation by Russia. This will have global consequences, of course. 
Then again, there were experts saying that Russia would roll Ukraine in a month when true. it first started. That's absolutely true, and we, we should point that out. You're, you're right for doing so. There are steps that could be taken to right. postpone the inevitable, right. although it's not really inevitable at this point, but it feels like it. Yeah, I agree. And, of course, the big concern is that Russia will achieve uh, aerial superiority, which pretty right. much that means... that was one of the, the key points that was leaked, was that Ukraine is running low on anti-aircraft supplies, and if and when they run out of those, and if and when Russia figures that out, then Russia will have air superiority, which is pretty much the end. Yeah, that's uh, he who controls the air usually ends up the victor in uh, military conflict. So we're keeping an eye on that. But the White House today says... Yeah, we think we know who leaked those documents. I, and what did you point out the other day? Uh, number two guy at the Pentagon, John, what the, what the heck's his Kirby. name? Kirby. Kirby, yeah. Says, hey, media, don't tell anybody. <laughs> that was the dumbest We're thing. We're not going to verify any of these documents, but these documents do not need to be headlines. <laughs> they don't need to be on the front page. But we're not verifying any of it. <laughs> Gosh. Oh, that's incredible. It's called the Streisand effect. Anytime, especially in the age of the Internet, when you try to hide something, especially in public, more attention is put on it. And it comes from Barbara Streisand. A photographer took a picture of her house and put it on the Internet in a little obscure folder full of pictures of houses along the beach. Well, Streisand and her lawyers decided, no, you're going to take that down. And it went from having like 13 views to having over a million in the span of a couple of days because nobody knew it existed until she got upset and shined a big spotlight on it. Yep. So that's uh, rather sobering news because I do think if Russia controls Ukraine, that poses a threat to the West. There's no doubt about that. What our reaction should be, I don't know. Smart guys got to figure that out. By the way, the uh, we were talking earlier about Corrine Jean-Pierre defending her boss, Joe Biden, with respect to his willingness to interact with the media. I think I might actually have some audio on this. Oh, great. Some time. So I'll say this. It is also unprecedented that a president takes as many shouted questions as this president has. And he no, has. Okay. Well we'll we'll get we'll we'll certainly we'll certainly get the data. Oh Toots. <laughs> shouted questions. <laughs> Maybe they're shouting because you never answer. Maybe that's the problem. So did a little research as of Yesterday, according to the American Presidency Project, check it out. Bill Clinton had held, conducted him personally, right, 92 presidential press conferences during his term as president. At the same point as Joe Biden is as of yesterday. Bush, 45, W. Bush, 45, Barack Obama, 53, Donald Trump, 41, Joe Biden, 23. So, I'm sorry, Miss Jean-Pierre is mathematically challenged. 
just like her boss. Now, keep this in mind, even though Donald Trump only had 41 as of this point, the guy was tweeting every day, round the clock, and the media was weighing in on his tweets, featuring his tweets, discussing his tweets, and tweeting back a lot. So, Yeah, that was a sad time for a swath of the population who had their whole lives wrapped around the notification that Donald J. Trump had tweeted so they could jump in there and say something snarky. You mean like the race lady at MSNBC <laughs> who was obsessed with it? Don Lamont at CNN and... Sad, miserable yeah. people. Cuomo when he was there. Yeah, that's all he did every day. Uh, Mika, Morning Joe, they were obsessed with it. Joe Biden is not accessible. He rarely gives a cogent answer of any substance to any question. And you heard the reaction from the press. Uh, a bit indignant were they to Miss Jean Pierre. What do you mean he takes all our questions? And then she backed down a little bit. Well, it's because a lot of those same people remember the guy from Playboy standing in the back shouting every single time. <laughs> that is right. That's and, all uh, he did. He showed up to scream. And who was the guy whose who's, uh, clip we featured a few weeks ago that's from a country in Africa that said, you don't call on me because I'm black. Remember that? He got he got indignant with uh, Corrine Jean-Pierre. I come in here every day. I try to ask questions. You never call on me. I think that was Simon Atiba. That's right. That's right. From uh, which country? Today, News Africa. Okay. Yeah. He's Cameroonian. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and... I mean, he put it on her. He said, yeah, you're not calling on me because I'm black. How how rich is that? The administration that claims to be the champions of equity and inclusion. <laughs> I love it. So back to this uh, situation with uh, health care. Just a couple of questions here. What happened to all the COVID money given to hospitals? Well, the short answer is it was used to deal with the excess patient load they had to deal with with, with respect to COVID. Um, now, there were some strings attached to the use of that money, but these hospitals were losing money long before then. They've been in the red a long time. They're just getting to the point, the critical juncture, because they're exhausting their reserves to offset these losses. This isn't new. It has certainly been exacerbated because of uh, the pandemic, and to a great extent, that's because there's just a shortage of labor, and that has driven up the price of labor across all healthcare professions. Now, it could be pockets of it. I know we've got folks on the text line that says we haven't seen any raises in our institutions and so forth, but in general, across the country, there's no question that the demand for healthcare professional talent way exceeds the supply, and thus the costs are up. But reimbursements from insurers, as Dr. Horn said, we really are kind of have our hands tied on what we can do there to bump that. That stayed pretty level, but again, I point out the most fundamental, core, critical problem is the vast amount of care that is provided that is unreimbursed, uncompensated, totally free. We're coming right back. 
Attention, adoring fans. It's time for Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Clash remake there, right? Of a, oh, yeah. That's like a 1960s song. The original artist, like Johnny somebody or something like that. We're back with you in the Element Well Studios. That's where we are. Today on In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, you'll hear an interview with weight loss specialist Dr. Eric Smith. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar is presented by VisitMississippi.org. You can hear the show each Thursday and Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. on most Super Talk Mississippi stations. Also, Sports Talk, they're going to do a remote today. Maybe the rain will be out of here by then. They're going to be live at Divinity Equipment and Rental in Madison for their spring dealer days. Come enjoy food from country meat packers. Giveaways, equipment demos, and so much more, plus instant coupons from Kubota. That's Sports Talk Mississippi on Thursday at Divinity Equipment and Rental on Highway 51 in Madison. Apparently, I thought the law was written by Sonny Curtis of the Crickets. Sonny. Okay, I said Johnny. But it was popularized by uh, the Bobby Fuller Four. Bobby Fuller. Okay. Yeah. It's kind of a weird song, though, isn't it? I fought the law, and the law won. Today, you don't even have to fight the law. The law don't come after you anymore in a lot of the country, crazy as it is. All right, so uh, nearly 30% of New Yorkers say they're out of there. They're leaving. They're tired of it. Tired of the taxes. Tired of the crime. Tired of just a deterioration of the cities. It's ridiculous. The high prices. They're leaving. Meanwhile, Governor Gavin Newsom, the man with the hair, as he is known for, he is uh, casting stones at every other state but his own. Everything's fine in, in California, right outside from where he Hangs out there. San Francisco, a once great city, has just been destroyed by leftist policy. But old Governor Gavin Newsom is is really focused on the biggest issues of our day. What did he have to say here? There's something deep and, and serious that's happening across this country. All the progress the last half century is being rolled back in these states in real time. Just the last few years, I don't think people fully understand the rights regression, individual liberties on civil rights, on voting rights, on the gerrymandering that's happening out here, on just the assault on the African-American community, the assault on the gay, lesbian, bisexual, and trans community. The number one issue of the day it seems to be getting rid of the word Latinx in Arkansas, and number two, getting rid of drag shows. It's a serious moment in American history, and yet we're so consumed respectfully by the spectacles 
in Washington that I, as an American, feel compelled as a governor to call that out and expose some of that in a more systemic way. And forgive me for being intense about this, but everything I have taken for granted in my life in the last half century in terms of rights expansion, I didn't even bring up abortion and contraception, all of that, all of that is in peril at this moment. And my kids, they need, if I care about my kids, I sure as hell better care about what's going on in Alabama. Oh, in the words of the great Patrick Henry, give me drag shows or give me death. <laughs> the most important thing, we got to have drag shows. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Latinx. we got to have the word Latinx. <laughs> I guess that's considered intense for California. <laughs> They're just all so laid back. Forgive me for being intense. <laughs> oh, my gosh. What a diatribe of nothing that was. <laughs> Especially the, the interjection of respectfully when talking about Washington. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Got to put them on a pedestal. Oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. It's just nuts. It's crazy that we're so upside down. Again, as Jeremy Nelson said, we're taking our eye off the prize. This just doesn't quite rate. In the meantime, we've got debt piling up, $1.4 trillion deficits in the works, Social Security, Medicare, Going broke, effectively. Massive health care challenges in our state and across the, the country. Hot spots across the globe. China saber-rattling. Russia on the cusp, potentially, of taking over Ukraine. We had, um, I believe there were some of the countries in the Middle East that hurled rockets at Israel last week. I mean, it's always... A hot spot, of course, but and they edge closer to obtaining nuclear capability. That's scary. Uh, freedom of speech seems to be taking a back seat to, as you like to say, feelings. It's all about my feelings. We had Riley Gaines on the program yesterday who just was exercising her right to speak and gets ambushed by people who don't like what she's saying and what she stands for. And this is happening across our country, and it's even more disturbing that it occurs on college campuses where we're supposed to be developing the next generation of entrepreneurs and leaders and physicians and scientists. It shows the general lack of understanding, especially on college campuses, when they equate words that they don't agree with to violence. That's exactly right. That's totally right. That ain't violence. It shows they've had a cushy life to be completely naive to actual violence. It's incumbency, I'm telling you. It's incumbency. Never had to worry about a thing ever. Never have have witnessed true war, true conflict, where the United States was so heavily involved. Really, that's not not been in general since they've been on the earth. 
and it's it's a shame. It's incumbency. It's just so easy. It's it's almost as if we we need something to like open their eyes. You keep thinking something would happen. Uh, you look at San Francisco, which we talked about, and all the bad things going on there. The brutal stabbing of a technology entrepreneur. I mean, yeah, you just look at San Francisco in the past week. They've uh, had Whole Foods closed down because it's not safe for their workers. They've had Starbucks remove all the tables to keep the homeless people from sleeping on them or under them. Uh, Bob Lee, like you were saying, was killed in front of luxury condos. The fire chief was attacked and almost beaten to death by homeless people with a metal pipe. There was a video going around of a crackhead giving birth to a baby on a busy street and nobody even paying attention. Oh, yeah, and Riley Gaines was attacked by a bunch of men in dresses. All All in San Francisco. In a week, right? And the scary thing is that sort of stuff starts to permeate the rest of the country and the rest of society. A lot of crazy stuff starts there. But yet, we're more worried about forcing everybody to own an EV. Whether you want it or not, you're going to have an EV. I mean, that's what they want to do. And the cost of EVs, considerably more than traditional fossil fuels, internal combustion engine-powered vehicles. But no, we got to do it in the interest of climate change. The goal being, of course, to just totally turn your world upside down and make it what they want to make it. Meanwhile, Robert Wright, our old pal on Twitter, he says yesterday, late yesterday, sowing racism, homophobia, and transphobia creates life-or-death dangers for many Americans, but for MAGA Republicans... It serves to divert attention from the economic plunder by the ultra-rich. The rich are plundering you. (laughs) God. They want people to fear one another rather than unite against authoritarianism. You're the authoritarian. (laughs) It's him. We have met the enemy, and it is you, Robert Reich. Look in the damn mirror if you want to find authoritarianism. Oh, gosh. In the meantime, this ESG movement, they're finding that to be a little difficult to implement. Imagine that. we got to talk about that. And, uh, of course, at 12.05 today, Senator Jeremy England will recap the 2023 legislative session, give his thoughts on uh, what happened up in Tennessee, in the Tennessee capital as well. That's something that could happen right here in Mississippi. We're coming right back, middays from the Element Well Studios. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi.
back in the Element Well Studios. Yeah, so all these companies jumped on this ESG bandwagon. It's a you know it's a corporate form of virtue signaling, but they've got budget constraints, meaning they're trying to figure out how to allocate and budget their expense model. And there's just a bunch of money going to whatever the hell ESG is, in in terms of not not in terms of describing what it at least purports to address what its purported objectives are, but, like, what exactly are we getting for this? They're starting to scratch their head. So you've got a squeeze on budgets because the the, the decline in economic activity is posing revenue problems to a lot of companies. And so executives, oh, they're all virtuous. They're all committed to sustainable operations and various environmental, social, and governance initiatives, but they don't have enough money to fund whatever those initiatives are. And you know what else is happening? They can't really measure the results. Like, what did we achieve here? Same thing we've said about all this DEI investment. Like, exactly what are you getting done here? Seems to me like all you're doing is dividing us more. So I have a a friend who works for a Fortune 500 company. I'll just say in the pharmaceutical industry. Now, there's a bunch, obviously, in the Fortune that are pharmaceutical. And this friend shared with me Monday night that every employee is required, recent policy, required to associate with some sort of group, group identity, essentially within the company. So it's the LGBTQ plus IAQ, whatever, group. It's the indigenous. It's the black. It's the Latino. I I can't even think of all of them. The women, this and that and the other. And so there are no groups for white males. I know you're shocked. (laughs) Well, he's a white male. So... He had a conversation, and by the way, when they when they have these these web meetings, these Zoom meetings, WebEx, whatever Teams, whatever tool they use, it is a requirement that your video is on. He shared that with me. So you can't you can't turn your video off. Requirement. They won't start the meeting unless everybody's got their video on. And no recording. Of course, you can you can control that so that no participant can record it. Now. Technically, I guess you could record it from your phone, but if your video's on, that poses a bit of a problem as far as trying to get screens, because you... I mean, there are stealth screen recording There are. There's screen apps. scrapers and stuff like that, but it, it, they try to make it difficult, try to minimize that sort, because they don't want it to leak to the likes of guys like Christopher Rufo, who then report all that stuff. I mean, if somebody was really serious, they do have those smart glasses with cameras. That's on. right, yeah, uh, if you wanted to. But you see the point there. They're, right. they're trying to uh, alleviate that possibility. So he told me that after the meeting, he called his boss. He said, you know, I, I don't fit into any of these groups. The boss said, I don't either. So they were just going to throw darts at a target, whichever one it landed in. <laughs> That's the group. So how is this productive for the business, 
It's to, not, and it's not even wanted by a majority of consumers. No. There right. have been count, not countless, but there have been survey after survey after survey going back to, I think the earliest was in 2016, 2017, when they started asking about the, politi- the political posturing of companies. And they would ask consumers, do you want companies to be political or do you want them to be more neutral? And it's been pretty consistent. 60 to 70% of consumers want the companies to focus on the bottom line, to give them the best product for the lowest price. They don't really give a rip what the CEO and the board thinks about social issues. No doubt about it. And I would argue they don't really care what the CEO's making. All they care about is, do I like that product? And and am I willing to pay the price they're asking me to pay for it? So, and I just start to think about, gosh, rather than participating on this just series, constant series of meetings that you guys have where you're talking about this diversity, equity, and inclusion, and ESG stuff, couldn't you do better if you were out taking care of your clients, providing the service that they want? They don't care about how many of those meetings you went to, just like you said. That's not high on their list. Now, they may try to kind of feign it, make it look like it is. Oh, yeah, we're concerned about your ESG, like uh, BlackRock and those guys were trying to do. But the bottom line is this report, which came out, by the way, of one of my technology industry journals, says, yeah, the big technology companies can't figure out how to implement this because they can't figure out how to measure it, and they can't figure out what the value of it is. So we're just going to put it on the back burner. Good, I think that's good news. Fox News, Super Talk News next, then Jeremy England. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour three of Middays, live from the Element Wealth Studios on this Friday Eve. Joining us now is Senator Jeremy England. He represents District 51, serves as the Vice Chair of Economic Development. Is that right, Senator? Yep. Well, I'm I'm Judd B., uh, Vice Chair. Okay. Okay. Well, we got got it wrong here in our little write-up, but that's okay. I I think we had this last time, and you corrected me on it, so I appreciate that. But nonetheless, thanks for joining us today. You you down in Jackson County today? I am down here in Ocean Springs, uh, hoping it quits raining so leave I can get a baseball game in this afternoon. Man, we're just watching that. It has uh, been constant since we uh, got up this morning here in central Mississippi, and it's still, Rhino, what'd you say, 100% till 3 o'clock, right? Yeah, and then it drops down to the measly 97%. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, appreciate you joining us. Uh, just a, a couple of weeks uh, removed from Sonny dying down there at the Capitol. What did you think about the session? You know, I think we had a really good session. This was my first, um, you know, campaign year to be in session. And, and, of course, we always hear that it's a it's not a busy year heading into campaigns. But we we bunked that this year. We uh, we, we hit the ground running in January. And I think we did a lot of good things 
uh, and, and actually took care of a lot of things this past session. Anything in particular kind of stands out that you would deem as very positive legislative accomplishments? Yeah, plenty, actually. Uh, okay. I do think that we did a really good job uh, funding transportation, uh, the Department of Transportation to do infrastructure upgrades around our state. That's going to be something that's going to going to pay off in the long run. These are one-time type costs. And, and after speaking with Director Brad White uh, at the Department of Transportation, this is going to allow them to uh, kind of clear the backlog of projects that they've had waiting and kind of sitting on go for a long time and allow other projects to move up into the hopper and, and get uh, get rolling. I'm really proud with what we did uh, there with that. I think that we made uh, a lot of good decisions when it comes to the city of Jackson that I hope that we see paying off and that we can get our, our capital city uh, back in good shape. Uh, I hope that we can do that with working with the uh, with the local leadership there. Uh, but regardless, we've got to we've got to do something there, and I think we've done that. We 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 we've, we've got ourselves on the right foot um, to clean up crime, to help with the water situation, uh, and to maybe get our our capital city rolling. But just just tons of good things that came out of this session. Of course, that's just a few. Yeah, of course. Now the capital city is uh, drowning in trash, so in garbage. Right. Might the governor call a special session to address that? I honestly don't think so, but it's a question that's been asked here on the ceasefire text line. Your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I'm not sure what the governor would do on that. Uh, I know that that he's there. Uh, you know, he, he can't be liking the smell and the the looks around the capital city there. But um, you know, if he calls us back, we'll come up and do what we can. Uh, that's that's our job, and and I'll be glad to pack a bag and head on up there and see if we can help it. I, I hope we don't have to do that. I hope. Uh, local leadership can kind of break that uh, break that dam that seems to be holding them up from from reaching some sort of an agreement and get it done. But if we get caught up, I'll I'll be glad to come up there and see if we can help. Yeah. Well, yesterday uh, a rather contentious press conference was held by the mayor of Jackson, Mayor Choque Labumba, and he called out certain members of without calling them by name, certain members of the city council. And uh, just seems to continue to point to racism as being the root cause for the fact that the citizens don't have reliable garbage pickup. Just seems like we got to push past that, Senator, and, and really focus on what the true root cause core issues are and getting a contract done. And I don't want to dwell on that, but it's one thing after another in our capital city, not good for the state overall. That's right. Like you say, it's our capital city. When people from New York or Atlanta or Los Angeles or other places think about our state, they think about our capital city, and we've got to get it under control. Look, ideally, uh, we don't want to just clean it up and keep people from leaving the capital city. We want people moving back and businesses moving back, and they're not going to do that if they can't come in and have their garbage picked up or have yeah. clean uh, clean water and utilities uh, flowing through their faucets. You know, So that's that's something we have to deal with. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, no doubt. So uh, what do you think about what happened in the Tennessee Capitol with uh, the, the protesters essentially in, in uh, committing incursion of the Capitol and taking it over, certainly stopping all the proceedings, and now we've got a couple of reps who were expelled and then readmitted is this something you think maybe could happen in the state of Mississippi's capital? 
You know, I guess it could, but I don't expect it to. I think that our leadership, I think the, the lieutenant governor uh, and the speaker uh, would have gotten control of that situation a lot quicker than maybe what happened in Tennessee. Uh, as a matter of fact, I know at one point in time when we did have a, a very lively group in the gallery, uh, they were gaveled down. And, and the lieutenant governor said, look, you know, we'd love for you to be here. This is your capital, but we've got to conduct business. And if you're not going to allow us to do that, uh, we're going to have the sergeant of arms come up and ask you to leave. Yeah. And, and of course, they quieted down and, and got the and allowed us to do our job, which is what we need to do. We're, we're tasked to uh, to legislate and go up there and, and do that for our constituents. Uh, and look, I, I made a comment about this, that if I were to particularly go up to the well, uh, if I wanted to protest something, I went to the well with a bullhorn and, and disrupted our legislative session for 45 minutes, I would expect to be expelled from the Mississippi State Senate because we've got to, we've got to have rules. We've got to have decorum and we've got to be able to do our jobs. It's a very important job that we do there. And we just can't have protesting from the floor like that. And I hated to see that in Tennessee. Uh, and I hope they can get that under control. Yeah, I agree. And, and of course, citizens, they have the right, uh, in our country to, uh, to redress their political leaders. That, that's embedded in the framework of the founding of our nation and our constitution. But it's not productive when you just seize the, the capital where the laws are made, where the legislating is going on, where you're trying to conduct the people's business, that's really not achieving anything and likely not to get the attention and the result you're looking for. Yeah, it's not. And, and look, Gerard, I've, I've gone to, to peaceful protests before. Back when we had the mandate, you know, we were off-site, um, you know, and, and I made my voice heard and others were doing that. And I know I have colleagues that will step outside of the Capitol sometimes and and discuss things with different groups so we can we can participate in those and we can address the people and we can address groups in a way that's productive and lets our voice be heard but not in a way that that disrupts and shuts down uh the legislature while we're in business that's that's not what we need to do and look it's the same thing if, you, if it were happening if it were to happen in a courtroom you know you don't want to just go up in front of a judge and just yell you know the judge is going to kick you out and hold you in contempt because we've got to have decorum and process when it comes to to our rules and our laws in this state. And if we lose that, uh, we've basically lost everything in this country because it's our laws and it's our system of government that holds that holds up. Uh, it's our foundation for our entire country. We can't lose that. Yeah, absolutely. Can't have a functioning economy, can't have a functioning society if you can't have order uh, in our government and our, and our lawmaking and our, and our legislating. Uh, so a couple of things that noticeably did not happen in the session. I think top of that list is uh, the ballot initiative, the citizen ballot initiative process. Couldn't, couldn't get the Senate and the House on the same page on that. What do you think? Yeah, I, I don't know anybody that's not disappointed that we didn't get that done this year, but it just didn't happen. Uh, we, we moved closer, I think, in discussions. It's something that I think we need to get that we need to get back. Uh, we need to have that. The citizens need to have that as a constitutional right, as a matter of fact. Uh, so we need to work that out. Uh, but we need to be careful with how we do it. You know, we can't just rush back into this because if we do, we're going to see outside money dumped into our state on certain issues. Uh, we're going to lose our, our constitutional republic system of government potentially if we, if we, uh, allow for the, for, for the legislature to be bypassed in certain things. 
But at the same time, that's the way the people can get our attention. If we're not doing what the people of Mississippi want, uh, they need a ballot initiative process. So I, I, it, it will be revisited. I know that leadership on both chambers in both chambers was disappointed we couldn't get something done. And I look for us to uh, to jump right into that as soon as we get back in Jackson. Yeah. Well, it certainly comes up uh, here on the text line, which is a, a pretty good, I think, sample of the sentiment uh, of the citizens across the state. Folks think they have the right to go to the ballot box and, and um, make law, essentially, that uh, their lawmakers aren't getting done within certain reasonable parameters. we got a break right now. Can you hang around? got some other stuff to talk to you about as well. Yes, yeah, certainly, Gerard. Great. Senator Jeremy England is our guest on Middays. We're coming right back. stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert, Middays with Gerard, Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Middays from the Element Well Studios. Our guest is Senator Jeremy England, just talking about the 2023 legislative session so didn't get a ballot measure through unfortunately i think that's something the people were really looking to be uh to be cured uh by our legislature but we couldn't get the the house and senate to agree i guess the the, the primary uh point of contention was the uh, the number of signatures required to gather to validate a measure for placement on the ballot and there's a big delta between what the Senate seems to want and what the House wants. Yeah, I think that's right, Gerard. I think that's kind of the holdup is, uh, you know, we don't want to make it a number that's that's so far out of reach that it's basically just in the law but not accessible. Uh, and we also don't want it to be a number to where we get things on a ballot initiative that, that really don't have uh, much support. And that's kind of where we are. I think there was some movement, uh, but just not enough to get us done there in the last few days of session. Surely this will come up again next year, don't you think? Oh, yeah, I certainly think so. This this isn't going to go away until we fix it, um, and I think we'll get there. I know I've, I've said that several times on your show, yeah. um, but but every time I, I get a chance to talk about it, look, it's it's something we need, uh, but it's also something we need to make sure we get right whenever we, we codify this um, this process. Yeah, so we uh, also something that was addressed somewhat in this legislative session was uh, the health care uh, industry in our mm-hmm. state, which is uh, struggling mightily from an economic perspective. We just had Dr. Mark Horn on the program about an hour ago. He, of course, uh, is the chief medical officer at uh, South Central Regional in the Laurel area. So this is uh, the, the legislature saw fit to pass a, a few measures that I, I feel like were we're good overall. There's a sustainability grant program where just dollars are going to go straight to the hospitals to help them out a little bit. 
uh, as they struggle financially. And then we've got some uh, we've got a measure that would uh, offset the cost of uh, of I think nurse training and, and nurse education. Mm-hmm. And then, and then we've got some tax credits in that form, and then we've also got some student loan assistance. So just trying to, to boost the number of people entering the healthcare profession, getting trained, getting educated, and then hopefully staying here. And I think there's some strings in those bills that require that stay here, work here, provide those services to Mississippians. And then we've got the bill that allows hospitals – uh, an easier path to consolidate when that makes sense. It's pretty much we, what we did, but we still have a problem in Mississippi. We still have, uh, you know, Singing River right in your back door uh, just sold uh, recently. Right. And uh, Gulfport Memorial is one, a big uh, operator there on the Gulf Coast. It's also bleeding red ink. This problem isn't going away. No, it's not going to go away. And, and I think my daughter, who likes to listen to Taylor Swift may put it as putting a band-aid on a bullet hole. Um, <laughs> but but we look we've we've done what we, we could this past year and it's gonna be an ongoing problem. It's gonna be something we have to keep discussing. And I think it's important to note that one of the problems that we're facing is the way that healthcare is being delivered is changing. And and the the process and the, the overnight stays just aren't there, fortunately, right? Yeah, I mean, we, right. You, you used to go in for a knee replacement, and you might be in the hospital for a week or two, and now you could be home the next day or the day after that. And so um, so you're not having those stays. So revenue uh, is changing, and I think that what we've done with allowing hospitals consolidate uh, may help. Uh, that situation we have, we did give, um, I think it was between 100 and 105 million, uh, to various hospitals to try to help out with, with some of their revenue, uh, situations they're, they're going. But we're going to have to get all of these folks to the table. And that was a very good interview, by the way, with the doctor from Laurel there that you had earlier, uh, and the points that he made. And I'll say that one thing Singing River did, uh, one thing that our hospital system did was we, we're creating a new nursing program. And we're going to be training nurses right here in Jackson County because you're absolutely right. If people are trained here uh, and they put their roots down here, they're they're more likely to live here. So that's all that all comes in uh, with with economic and workforce development. We're developing that workforce here at home, uh, and I think we're going to see uh, that pay off in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. We've got uh, tax credits. That was a bill uh, for nurses and then the hospital nurse retention loan repayment program, which just, uh, is, is state funds used to offset the cost of, uh, loans, uh, to get their various nursing credentials, degrees and so forth. Uh, all good moves, but they're more long-term in nature. I mean, I think, uh, necessary to address the long-term outlook and the shortage of, of, uh, staff, but the, but the short term, the urgent, the critical need is that everybody's concerned about, of course, are these hospitals that are cash flow negative and it's concerns about some of them maybe even shutting down uh, with leaving areas without facilities. But you're right. There's been a shift to more ambulatory care, which used to be a huge revenue generator for hospitals. And now we've got these ambulatory surgical centers that have, have kind of um, sifted a lot of that sort of work away, sapped it away, and, and that's putting additional revenue pressure on the hospitals. Uh, school choice, you know that uh, 
I'm affiliated with an organization in Power, Mississippi, full disclosure on that, that have been uh, school choice advocates for uh, since the inception of the organization in 2014. We seem to really struggle in the legislature getting any meaningful school choice bills through. What do you think? Well, I think we're going to see that shift. Uh, you know, we're seeing that happen in other states around us, Arkansas uh, and Florida. Uh, you know, they've kind of jumped out. I think Arizona maybe even recently did yep. something where they allowed more school choice and allowed parents the options to, uh, you know, to send their children to other schools or to get a voucher to send them to charter schools. And, you know, charter schools, uh, some people think of that as, as a a word you don't use in the capital, but those are public schools as well. And and what we're doing, and the reason I like those, and the reason I like school choice, is because in Mississippi we have too many children that are that are born into a situation where they're they live where there just aren't uh, good schools. They're not able to get a good education, and their parents, you know, it's silly for us to suggest, you know, just pick up and move. Uh, where you can go to better schools because you can't do that. Parents can't do that. They can't leave their jobs and just uproot just to go get their kids uh, a better education. And what school choice would allow is it allows those parents another option uh, and not just just have their children uh, stuck uh, in kind of a, a no-win situation. So I think we'll see, uh, and I hope that we'll see us uh, transition to where we can have more options whether it be cross-district lines or, or a voucher-type situation or a scholarship-type situation where you can take tax dollars per student and, and move those students to a new school uh, because we've, we've really got to um, we've got to do something different here yeah. in Mississippi. Yeah, agree. And you're right. I think we're seeing more states fall in line and adopt uh, school choice uh, measures and school choice policy and it just feels like we're starting to lag a little bit in, in that department, especially with neighboring Arkansas passing sweeping school choice legislation here. Uh, one of the first big issues that uh, newly elected Governor Huckabee Sanders got done, a big uh, advocate, proponent, champion of that. Hopefully we can get that done. 2024, right. I know I know you got an election coming up first, but uh, 2024, right around the corner, what's on your radar to address legislatively next year? I know you're going to get reelected, so what's up? Well, I appreciate that. I certainly hope the, the good people of District 51 will, will vote me back in and send me back. Um, look, I want to see us keep working on the, the four pillars of, of what I think are the most important uh, functions of government, that being infrastructure, uh, education, safety, and health care, because those are the things that, that businesses look at whenever they want to move into the state of Mississippi or when people want to locate to, to a community here within the state. That's what they look for. They want to have good infrastructure. They want to get their products out. They want to be safe when they're on the roads. Uh, they want to be safe at their homes and, and, and have a good police force. Uh, they want to have good health care. And again, they want to have good education. So there's a lot of things we can move forward on that. I'm really excited with where we're going right now with a lot of our career coaches and our workforce development in this state. So anything that I can do to help um, help promote that and move that forward in 2024 uh, is going to be very important for me because that's always that's always on my radar. If we if we're not attracting new businesses and 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 preventing brain drain here in the state of Mississippi, we're not uh, not doing what we're supposed to be doing. So that's that's going to be very important to me this next section, this next session and as long as I serve. Yeah, yeah, agree. And and again, uh, I appreciate that uh, we've been talking about that today. You may have heard us keeping the eye on the prize, and that's that's what we got to focus on right there because everything in our state 
improves, gets better, creates more opportunity, a higher quality of life when we focus on those issues and make those better. And, and I hope that's what the legislature continues to, uh, to look towards. Yeah, that's right. And we've made good strides in the last several years under the leadership of Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman and Governor Tate Reeves. And, of yep. course, uh, Speaker Philip Gunn, we've made some good strides, but we can't get complacent with, with seeing good things happen. We've got to keep moving, keep moving the ball forward. Uh, and and keep trying to make our state a better place for for our kids and and for everyone here. Get people to move here. Appreciate it, Senator. Thanks so much for joining us, and uh, also appreciate the uh, the easy question you you threw at me uh, during my lottery confirmation hearing. That was fun. <laughs> a- absolutely. Hey, and I'm I'm with you. And look, I got a lot of text messages that agree with you on on uh, on that one. Awesome. Appreciate All you go speed wagon to the Hall of Fame. There you go. Appreciate it, Senator. <laughs> That's right. We'll talk to you soon, my friend. Take care. Started today. Days with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. Back in the Element Wealth Studios. That's Alan Clark in the Hollies there bumping us into that segment. We appreciate you joining us uh, so much today. So on the ceasefire text line, Steve in the Delta, the truth is the truth is they don't want to give up the power. Steve, I believe, referring to the citizen ballot measure process where we voters could uh, meet the requirements to get a proposed bill on the ballot. You go to the ballot box in a statewide election and vote accordingly as you see fit, and that becomes law. The present process in place does not allow for a measure voted on, placed on the ballot to create statute. Rather, it is only for the purpose of amending the Constitution. Uh, but, of course, that's been nullified because of some some math problems in the, in the Constitution. I don't know who came up with that idea, but it specifies the number five referring to the congressional districts in the state requiring that there must be equal distribution of signatures on a ballot measure from voters to put a measure on the ballot it must be equally distributed. In other words, the idea is you got to have sufficient support across the entire state. That's the that's the uh, the concept. That's the goal of that requirement. The only problem is we ain't got before congressional districts. So that was placed in the Constitution when we had five, and I guess at that point nobody ever thought we'd have a different number of congressional districts. We've since now been reduced to four. Now that happens every time we have a census. Every ten years, 
Which is why it could be disconcerting to have 30% of New Yorkers moving out because they just had the census. That's true. Their congressional delegation has already set in stone for the next Next 10 years. years. Yeah, that's a good point, which really doesn't reflect the current population. But who would have thought you'd have had that kind of population change? But, but yeah. Of course, who'd have thought you'd have idiots running the largest city in the country, too, to the extent they are? I just heard they got a rat czar now. You heard this? Oh, yeah, former teacher. <laughs> a rat czar. <laughs> Making, I want to say, $136,000 a year. Unbelievable. To fight the rat problem. Unbelievable. Rat czar. Well, at least they have somebody in charge of the problem instead of just asking everybody, hey, change what time you put out your trash. That'll trick the rats. Because that is what the prior approach was. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Okay, so, yeah. And I would say this. this, That was from Stephen the Delta on the ceasefire tax line who said the truth is they don't want to give up the power. I think it's probably true that there are some members of our legislature that believe that lawmaking – should be the uh, expressly the the power of uh, the lawmaking body, that being the legislature. I do think there is some sort of old school thought on that, if you could call it that. But I also believe that we need to be honest in in that if we get a ballot measure process and there are no or very limited restrictions, and you've got to have some common sense restrictions. You can't just go to the the polls and have a ballot measure that says, hey, let's dissolve the government. I don't think that would work. Or let's let's eliminate all taxation, just zero revenue. Let's eliminate the public schools, something like that. I don't think that uh, there's got to be some reasonable restrictions. And as I recall, the bill the House drafted last year that uh, got um, stonewalled in the Senate, it had some language in there that basically protected the state from some sort of measure that would place it in um, economic peril from a state budgetary perspective. But the point is, I do believe that if we had a, a fairly unrestricted ballot measure process, I think three big issues would go to the ballot that would likely pass. That's Medicaid expansion. That's some access, limited access to abortion. And then, um, what was the other one that I was thinking of? Recreational marijuana. That's it. Thank you. Yeah, because I've said it a a few times on the show. Recreational marijuana. I think all those would pass. I really do. And there's some organizations that have polled that, and the polls suggest at least those polling organizations that all of those are above water from a support perspective. So that's something that's got going on there. Um, there was something else. Steve's right, says Andy. Yeah, I, again, I think there's some concerns, but I think the senator is right. The concerns from the legislature, I should say, just to follow up, that, yeah, this is our job. You, you're trying to do our job. I think the senator is right, Senator England, who was on earlier, in that uh, there are concerns. I've spoken to the lieutenant governor about this. There's concerns about out-of-state interests sort of leveraging the ballot process to to uh, get certain things through that they want, and they would use their money to do so and uh, have sufficient funding to achieve whatever legislative goals 
they have. I, I say that the higher signature threshold sort of ensures, makes it more likely that only such well-funded, out-of-state, well-organized interests would be able to leverage the ballot process, the ballot measure process. So I think it's the opposite. It's a fine line in there somewhere of what the right number of signatures should be. If there has to be equal support across the state, how come a politician can win an election from votes out of one county? I'm not following that. Clint from Meridian asked that question. It's 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 because um, it's for something to just be validated as as uh, having strong interest, such that it needs to go to the ballot for voters to vote on. It needs to be done on a statewide basis because the laws are state laws. Some laws, of course, only apply to small areas of the state, but in general, laws are statewide in nature, uh, affect the entire state, the entire population of the state. Paula Meridian says, if the will of the people is to legalize marijuana, then why wouldn't the legislature put forth some form of sensible legalization? We could ask that same question, Paul, about Medicaid expansion and some limited access to abortion. Uh, just based on what polls show, um, public polls, and national polls also uh, show that in the same light, it's some, with some reasonable limits. Gerard, just think about it, says Mose, if the legislature does nothing with a ballot initiative for the next 10 years and we pick up enough population to bring us back to five districts, it would all be a moot point. That's absolutely true. Then we'd we'd be back to having a valid process as prescribed by our Constitution, but we could only amend the Constitution, Mose. I don't see us picking up sufficient population, honestly, to uh, to gain another district. That's a, an incredibly tall order. Incredibly. I mean, it's not impossible, but that is incredibly optimistic. Yeah. I would like to see consideration of a constitutional initiative process with a higher number of signatures and a statutory initiative process with a lower number of signatures on the ceasefire tax line. Well, keep in mind that as if any of these measures that have been deliberated and considered over the last two years, and that being the last two sessions since the current process was invalidated by the Supreme Court, if any of those were enacted, that simply empowers the people to make statutory change at the ballot box. There would be no power of the people to place a measure on the ballot to amend the Constitution. That would have to come and be initiated by the legislature. Who could? In fact, what we're talking about here, which is getting a ballot measure process that would allow the citizens to vote to make or amend statute, that has to go to the ballot as a resolution to amend the Constitution. So the legislature can place measures on the ballot In fact, it's required. That's how we amend our Constitution. If it's not done through a citizen-initiated process, which has been invalidated. So the only avenue we have presently is the legislature can place 
a proposed amendment, if you will, on the ballot for the people to vote on, and that's exactly what this resolution, how it would be structured to change the citizen ballot measure process. So I think we're going to end up with just one is the point there. And if we need to amend the Constitution, the legislature would place something on the ballot. We really shouldn't be going to the ballot, in my view, to just make wholesale changes to the Constitution that are initiated by the citizens. Coming right back, final segment. Middays with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. Welcome back, Midday's final segment on this Friday Eve. That would, of course, be Kevin Cronin and REO Speedwagon. They need to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Paula Meridian says marijuana legalization would bring in tax revenue, not cost a state. Uh, not, not trying to be argumentative with you here, Paul, uh, but so would prostitution. And the only point I'm trying to make is it, it, it's, a, it's a moral discussion. Some people believe it's immoral uh, to to legalize, and, and just detrimental in other ways as well, to legalize uh, marijuana for recreational purposes. I mean, some believe that for medical purposes as well. So that that's the debate. Um, but I do think that pass. I just really do. If it went to uh, the polls, wouldn't it? Uh, would it not be easiest on the ceasefire tax line to just reword the existing provision to say? Current congressional districts at time of initiative. Well, sure. That that means that if first of all you can't amend again the the constitution without a measure being placed on the ballot to do so, and the citizens in a statewide election voting in favor of said provision. That's how you have. That's how we amend the constitution. There are two paths to amend it to get a measure on the ballot to do so. One is the legislature can place one on the ballot. It's a resolution. doesn't even have to be signed by the governor. The other is the citizens can get a measure once it meets all the various uh, criteria for placement on the ballot. The problem we have is we got this this situation where our current provision says you got to have uh, equal distribution of signatures across five congressional districts. We only have four, and it has the number five specified in the Constitution. So to fix that, we still got to go to the ballot. So the legislature had the wisdom, based on a lot of feedback from the public, from voters that said, you know what, we really don't like this idea of going to the ballot to amend the Constitution, let's just amend law. Let's let's keep that out of the Constitution. And um, because, like Initiative sixty five, for example, which was the medical marijuana initiative, based on utilization of the current citizen initiated ballot measure process, that entire bill essentially would have been inserted into our Constitution. It really doesn't belong there, in my view. So it makes more sense for it to be in statute. Um, so that that's what the discussion's all about. We don't want 
We, Gerard, guess we're just old, says Tim and McGee. Well, we ain't all old, though, Tim. <laughs> and there are a lot of old people that actually want it. Bear, bear in mind, you're shaking your head. You know that, uh, Rhino. So Darren and Jackson says, we are a representative republic, not a democracy. Well, understand. Uh, and that's why there would be some reasonable parameters placed on the citizen-initiated ballot process. It's not intended to replace the legislature's lawmaking obligations and power. And as I recall, the House bill has some stipulations where once it's enacted, it's, it's good for two years, provided it meets all the other requirements until the legislature could amend it, uh, repeal it potentially. I think that was the, uh, the way it was uh, structured originally. I saw a question earlier on in the process that I never really saw a good answer for. But where does the governor's office fit into this? If uh, you were to have a ballot-initiated statute, well, statutes in the state have to be signed off on by the governor. I think that's right. I, I, I mean, that's a different matter there, because you're making statute here, and so that does require the governor to uh, to sign, to execute, to approve. That's different when you're amending the Constitution. Correct. It's a diff- different process, different structure. How many years did we operate under the previous initiative process with no issues like you're describing, says Andy? Why not put the same process back in place? I believe it was in the 90s. Rhino and I both agree that we seem to recall that it was in the 90s, the, 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 the provision that currently exists is enshrined in our Constitution. Uh, and it didn't really get a whole lot of use, honestly. So uh, why not put the same process back in place? And again, Andy, I, I think we just discussed that because most people feel like we need a, 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 an avenue, a, re, uh, a route to affect statutory matters, not just amend the Constitution. And, and that's why, in a nutshell. Uh, current medical cannabis sales are largely going to middle to late age Caucasian females. Okay, I don't know. I haven't looked that up, and don't know where that date is. But certainly take your word for it. I just heard if you have a medical marijuana card, you cannot have firearms in your home. Wow, we've talked about that a bunch. I'm sorry you missed that live from Brandon. We'll get that uh, next week, but it's not exactly what you think. Uh, let's see. And still today, no one has ever died from a marijuana overdose says Paul and Meridian. Yeah, again, this is just a it's a a polarizing debate to say the least, but again, we would get Medicaid expansion, I'm pretty sure, if we went to the ballot and some limited access to abortion as well. Keep that in mind. We're out of here today. I'm off tomorrow playing a little golf at Waverly. Have a great weekend. Back with you Monday. Stay safe and God bless. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.